You're listening to Metrics and Chill, where you'll learn how to improve key metrics that grow your business from companies that have done it before. In this episode, I got to talk with Peter Zawistowicz to learn how he increased engagement among targeted accounts by over 50% in just one quarter at his time in Gremlin. We also talk about his time currently at Pace, how he tracks output metrics when there's no historic data to set goals from, the ABM metric he created to get a more accurate read on the impact his campaign was having on targeted accounts, and a ton more. Peter shared so many amazing insights on messaging, positioning, and really all things marketing. I know you're going to get a lot out of this interview. I hope you enjoy it. Okay, Peter, thank you so much uh, for coming on Metrics and Chill. Super excited to chat with you today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Um, so the way that we typically start these things is, can you give like a 30-second you know, pitch or, or elevator uh, talk about what Pace is and what Pace does, like who it's for? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Pace is still relatively new. We've only been around about a year. Um, but in a nutshell, we help sellers at B2B SaaS companies make sure they're spending time on you know the right customers. Um, specifically, this gets really challenging uh, when you have a product-led growth or PLG motion, um, because you might have 100 users and only five of them really need your assistance. So Pace is really helping them find those five users and, and spend the right time in the right place. And is it, when you say help, is it like where to focus your uh, customer support efforts or where to focus like sales efforts? Yeah, that's a great question. So right now um, we're really focusing on sort of the sales motion um, because I think that's one of the, the most tricky challenges that comes up when you start to implement PLG. Um, but, you know, uh, we imagine that we'll be helping all sorts of customer facing teams. Awesome. We're going to have to check it out because, yeah, we at Databox, we have like a very wide you know set of use cases and a, and a fairly like wide ICP right now that. Uh, that finds the product valuable and that like you're right that's one of the challenges like people sign up that's like one of the advantages of plg but like you don't always know like why are people signing up why are people churning like you don't always have that touch point with them so i have to check pace out and see if it can help um okay so today we're going to be talking about this is be a i'll say this for listeners sake this is a little bit of a different episode in that we're going to talk about some of the metrics and um that you look at at pace um, like you said, the product's new, the team is fairly new. So we're going to talk a little bit about how you have identified some of the early channel channels that you're you know, making investments in and some of the early metrics that you're tracking for that. But the main metric that we'll talk about today is one that you grew when you were at Gremlin and that is driving engagement for ABM accounts. So, um, so, you know, to get started, um, what are some of the, you told me pre-interview that, you know, because things are early and everything, you've these these marketing channels you've decided to invest in. Uh, it, you don't have necessarily like goals yet that you're projecting out, like results oriented goals, as much right now as what we would call um, output goals, like things that you are looking to do to track ongoing output or work. Um, I think you call them input goals. Can you talk about some of those? Yeah, yeah. Um, it's a really interesting uh, experience for me coming from, uh, you know, a series B, C company. And then before that, I was at a, you know, pre-IPO and then public company. Um, because a lot of the metrics I'm thinking about now are things that previously I would have kind of like balked at as like, you know, vanity metrics. Um, but the reason I'm really, you know, paying attention to those now is we don't have sort of the baseline to understand how those input metrics translate to the actual outcomes that we care about. You know, so for an example... Uh, you know, a, a Gremlin or a MongoDB, I wouldn't necessarily care a ton about website visits because 
um, really what I cared about was, you know, signups or revenue or pipeline. Um, but we had like the conversion rates uh, from months and years of, uh, you know, previous efforts to say, okay, if we get this many website visitors, this should translate into this much revenue or pipeline or, or signups. We don't have the luxury of that at a, a company like Pace. So really what we're doing is number one, tracking the metrics that we can actually see and then starting to develop that baseline. Um, but the other thing that's really helpful about these sort of input metrics is in a lot of ways, we're less concerned about the actual goal that we're hitting. And it's more about how are we building that muscle memory? How are we building that like marketing machinery to execute on the things that we want to do? So for example, rather than saying, hey, I want to get, you know, a thousand page views on this blog post, um, it's, I want to publish a new blog every week, or I want to, you know, hit this many number of uh, social posts. Um, because really the challenge isn't getting those thousand page views. The challenge is we're a tiny company and we haven't like really nailed down like roles and responsibilities and daily operating rhythm and things like that. So the challenge is actually getting it out and shipping it. Um, so really it's just about aligning what the most important thing to focus on is with the actual number that we're tracking. I really love this. I think it's going to be so helpful and encouraging to earlier stage companies or smaller companies that are listening because uh, like you said, I think a lot of this is something we actually did a post on. Um, I think it was this week sometime about like vanity metrics kind of getting thrown under the bus a lot. But I think a lot of times vanity metrics are just um, either like leading indicators without the context of lagging indicators. Like you're just not people that do it are just not showing how it ties through. And a lot of people, I think it's like too simplistic if you just scan LinkedIn and you're an early stage company, you, you just could feel like crap because you're like, you feel like a crap marketer because you're like, well, all I have, like we're in year one, we're in, you know, month six. All we have is like social impressions or blog visits or whatever. Like all we're doing is just getting this going. We don't have a, even any way to predict growth for like next quarter necessarily. Um, so I love the way that you all are thinking about this as like, hey, let's just, it sounds like it's, it's a twofold effect of like, let's just build uh, the muscle memory. Let's get the endurance and the ability to kind of crank these things out. And then like, that's going to form a baseline that eventually then we can start to predict growth from. Yeah. And I think, you know, that term vanity metrics is, is one that kind of like, uh, you know, triggers a lot of, uh, marketers and growth people like me, because it, it's a real, you know, you never want to be accused of, of chasing vanity metrics, but I think you're right. It's, it's when people are optimizing for those things, um, because maybe they don't think that, you know, if they actually did track it further down to those lagging metrics, that that correlation would hold. Like, you know, the classic thing of, you know, if you're optimizing for impressions, like you can do a bunch of things to get impressions that don't actually help, you know, the bottom line. And so you're like, that's that's a very different thing. And obviously, you know, you want to be keeping your eyes open for that if you're doing things that are counter to the actual end goal. But um, that's, that's different from just not being able to measure it or not being able to model it. How do you, so let's talk about that. Like the, the tie to the model. That's super interesting to me. Um, I've been at a lot of these, you know, early stage, uh, companies where there's, you know, a lot of the channels I was building in the past had not been done before. And so there was no direct tie of like, Oh, well, you know, like I could say, well, I know what our starting point is for impressions or blog visits or whatever, but not necessarily, uh, you know, the impact that it's going to have on revenue down the line. So do you, I know it's early there. Do you anticipate like 
can, can you give listeners that are struggling through that? Like if I was, if I was a listener in that stage, I, I would want to ask you, um, how long does it take? How long do I need to sort of focus on these input metrics as you call them, or as we call them output metrics? How long do I need to focus on kind of just shipping work and collecting data before I really get a good idea of like the actual non-vanity metrics, the signups, the revenue that the blog or social is driving? Like, and how do I, how long do I have to wait for that? How do I actually like create that model and eventually get away from just tracking, you know, so I'm not accused of vanity metrics. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Um, you know, I think the way I think about that is um, as soon as you have uh, sort of those, you know, call it down funnel or, you know, uh, more lagging metrics available to you, like, you know, keeping a record of that. Um, but for example, if you're, you know, I'm, this is top of mind for me, uh, if we're just doing a new event format and we've done three of them, like we'll know things like, you know, how much did we spend? How many attendees did we get? And, you know, maybe you're doing some sort of like NPS score, but like really the strategy for doing those events is something around probably brand awareness or, you know, pipeline generation or even, um, you know, deal acceleration or something like that. Um, those things aren't going to be available to you uh, until for things like pipeline generation, like you probably have a deal cycle that you have to account for. So that's probably the main uh, determinant of how long you have to focus on the input. Like you just won't have any results until, you know, it kind of goes through that machinery for things like brand awareness. Like, I think, I think there's an argument to be made that, uh, you know, you, you might have to wait a really long time, <laughs> probably like yeah. six months, a year plus, And then you can probably have a bunch of internal debates about how you're actually measuring that. Um, because usually it's just like an aggregation of a bunch of, you know, a bunch of what people might call vanity metrics. So it really kind of depends on what the underlying strategy for, for the thing is um, and, and what you're trying to drive to and, and how long it will take to to get that. And, and I think there's also an element of like, what's the sensitivity to experimentation? So what I mean when I say that is, you know, to use our event example, maybe you do a different um, campaign to drive uh, signups. Um, and so maybe you're able to spend the same amount, but drive, you know, 50% more attendees. Like that's a really interesting experiment, but maybe those attendees are less qualified and they don't translate to pipeline or revenue in the way that you want. Um, yeah, that's gonna take you a while to uh, to figure out. And was it bad that you drove more attendees? Probably not, um, but you know, it's all sort of like that, um, you know, it's that funnel model where you have to kind of think about where your variables are and, and know what you're optimizing for. I think, yeah, it's super helpful. Uh, to hear you articulate this, I, I think it leads me to also think you have to be really strategic about what your goals are with these channels, especially these like, um, I, I would call them, I, I know people call them different things. You could make a case for them to be called brand channels. You could make a case for organic demand creation channels. Like I think in a lot of ways, social, like your brand social on Twitter, LinkedIn could be like organic demand creation versus paid versus accelerating, getting impressions through paid. Um, and I think one of the one of the cha one of the struggles with that is if you do if you're not really strategic about what you want to use that channel for and the end result you want to drive like you said this is where you can get lost because i think what can happen is like i know is we've ramped up uh twitter for like, a really specific example top of mind for me we're working to grow twitter and um i had to make a conscientious decision to say okay do i like 
in my mind, if it's purely a brand play, I'm going to continue to optimize for like pure impressions. Like I want to be known and trusted more. Whereas if we want to use it more like a demand creation play, which is what I'm increasingly optimizing toward, I'm willing to maybe compromise some of the engagement because I'm going to reduce maybe some of the fluff, the punchier stuff that's just going to get impressions for more consumptions of our differentiation or our value prop or like whatever. Not that it's going to be every message, but every fourth or fifth tweet is going to be some nod to a, to a demand gen theme that if I was just brand, I might not lean into. Um, and that's where I think like if you don't have that guiding strategy, both ways you start out with like impressions that you're building a channel from scratch. You've never done it before. All we have is impressions and follows, but in 12 months, that's deeply the, the, the strategy dictating the scope of content you're pushing is going to like deeply um, affect where you end up. Like, did you hit your target or not? And it's like, Oh, maybe we made too much of a brand play and impressions have grown, but we don't see a ton of revenue or Hey, impressions are 30% than they less than they would have been, but actually Twitter's, you know, a, a good source of inbound for us right now. Um, so that's just another thought, you know, that came to mind. Yeah, that makes total sense. And I think to your point, like it, it defines where you're putting effort into content and what you're actually creating, but you could even find yourself in a situation that if you haven't aligned up front on what you're optimizing for that you like, you wouldn't have selected Twitter as that, that channel. Like, you know, maybe if you were really optimizing for like, building an affinity for your brand and your brand is really carried by, um, you know, your leadership team or, you know, the people that are doing the day-to-day -day work, like maybe a, you know, more video focused channel or like a podcast like this would actually be a more effective way of, of reaching that result. And so I, I've certainly seen that a lot, you know, in, in my short career is like not being upfront with, with what, what we're trying to achieve. Um, but starting with the channel, starting with, you know, some goals and then midway through being like, wait, why are we doing this again? Right. Um, right. So yeah. <laughs> now, speaking of that, like making the bets on these channels, you know, you're coming into pace, <clears throat> the team's early, the product's early. There's so much that hasn't been done. You're coming from quite a different background of experience. Like you, you're, you know, in past roles, I'm sure you were able to walk in and see a lot of existing data and kind of know where to double down growth. Um, how was there a framework, a mental model? I just use like two Twitter uh, thread buzzwords uh, there, but w w was there some way that you used to make a bet on which channels would work? You know, was it based on past experience, what you've seen before? Did you interview customers? Like, because this is again, an interesting conversation because you're having it like without any historical data to know it's going to work to talk about scaling it. So when you're making a, a six month bet in, and you're just going to focus on output and we're going to just make sure we ship the blog post or we put on the event, there's got to be quite a bit of belief that what you're going to do is going to pay off in six to 12 months. So what informed how you selected these channels? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Um, so the, the two kind of big bets that come to mind, one is we're investing, um, you know, some time on building a LinkedIn following. And the reason we arrived at, at that conclusion was, was based on a few different factors. Number one was we had some existing traction on LinkedIn um, before Pace even existed. Like, you know, just the founders, the early employees, like had, you know, the startings of uh, some traction there. So we weren't starting at zero. And when, whenever you can have something that's not at zero at a company at this stage, like, you know, take advantage of that. Um, the other thing is we know for a fact that uh, our, our key audience, which is like go-to-market leaders, you know, sales, marketing, uh, the like, spend a lot of time on that channel. We just know that from our own personal experience, you know, um, and just being in that world. 
Um, and then the third thing is compared to sort of other, you know, broad-based social networks, Facebook, Twitter, etc. cetera, uh, it's relatively easier uh, still to build a following and to get, you know, that organic reach without putting a lot of budget and time and effort behind it. So that was, that was kind of how we arrived at that decision. The other channel that pops to mind is like we are investing a lot into, um, you know, written content on our blog. Um, that decision was a little bit different because um, that can take so many different forms. And, uh, you know, some people have a lot of success with, you know, uh, content marketing at an early stage uh, or even, you know, some lightweight um, SEO work, too. Uh, the reason we did that is um, as an early stage company, like we're still developing our product. We're working with design partners. We're not looking for like instant, uh, you know, demand creation and transacting uh, for the purpose of generating revenue. Um, so building up a library of useful resources that are answering the questions that our customers are asking us on calls um, is actually like a more strategic long-term bet, uh, but we have the luxury of time and you know the luxury of not having like a monthly or quarterly goal to chase uh, from a pipeline or sort of like near-term perspective. Um, you know, reflecting on if I had made the case for something like this at uh, MongoDB or even Gremlin, hey, like I want to take on this project that's going to take, you know, six to 12 months to pay off. Um, I think all of my managers would have been very supportive as long as I continued to hit our, you know, quarterly pipeline and revenue and, uh, you know, MQL goals. So most people, uh, you know, don't have that luxury. Uh, so this is really like, we saw this as a window of opportunity to, to make a bet on something like that. It sounds like there's a lot of understanding and patience in, in the founder team or the leadership team there as well to allow sort of investments in these things. Um, and I like, I like the emphasis. I think a big takeaway for listeners here is to really kind of pump the brakes. Like there's such a temptation to kind of have an idea or see another company or every company in your space doing a certain channel and just kind of do it. Um, and you know, like the more, like you said, like I, I have a, you know, fairly young career comparably and like, but the, I, I really feel like a lot of the success is in like pumping the brakes and saying like, what's the, with our limited bandwidth and resources, what's the main thing we want to drive and what's one good way to get there versus just like, let's start this or start that or like jump on this channel because we need to be there. You know, like there's so many and so many people have uh, opinions and inputs on what marketing should be doing. It's very public. Um, so yeah, I, I love like the slow down and, and the methodical thinking here. Well, it's very reminiscent of, you know, the conversation that happens every once in a while around like who should the first you know, go to market role at a company B, um, you know, the classic model of like venture back startups is like you have a more technical founder and then you have a more like, you know, product or go to market founder. At some point you need to make the decision to like, you know, augment that go to market team because usually the first investments are in engineering and product. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of debate that, okay, you know, if it's a, a more marketing minded person, should it be more of like the brand marketer, more of the product marketer or more like the growth demand gen marketer? And I think, you know, one school of thought is, well, you know, if you're going to put investment into, you know, a marketing function, it should be someone who can like deliver results like relatively quickly. And so people like the idea of like, oh, well, if I hire a growth person or a demand gen person or even like a, you know, uh, outbound seller, like they're going to join and he or she is going to start, you know, developing results like within months or weeks. Um, but the question is always on what foundation um, and you know if you have a strong set of founders who understand marketing understand you know brand positioning messaging where that person can come in and take you know that foundational work and yeah really start delivering then fantastic I think you're probably um, you know the exception of the rule 
more likely you really need to have someone who has that like product marketing or branding mind to come and be like, okay, before we even talk about channels, before we talk about how we're going to say something, let's figure out what it is we want to say and who we're saying it to and why they care. Um, because it's shocking how often those steps get missed. Um, and especially with, you know, early stage companies, a lot of that is like in the founder's heads and a big part of my role as an early stage marketer is to, you know, take that from their minds, that lived experience, that, you know, knowledge that they have and translate it into a way that would like be scalable, not only externally to our prospects and customers, but internally to, you know, future employees that we hire. Yeah, I completely agree with you here. I, I think, um, I think it's so crucial. Like if you, to me, especially like if you're thinking about your website as the biggest place to, um, to capture the demand that's there and clearly communicate the pain that you solve for your customers, who they're for. Like a lot of times you'll hear this argument that like, well, early on, you don't know. You don't even know if you have product market fit. It's like, well, right. But you could, even then you could still start with like, who are the people the founders thought they'd be helping? Like who are the, who are the people that they think it's for? Or like of a hundred beta customers, who are the 10 that are in there the most using it and solving the most pain? Like at least start there, you know, and like draw from them the language of what pains they're solving from it, the differentiation they see in you, what they liked in you, why they gave you a try, reflect that on the homepage, put it into some sort of like beta positioning statement so that at least you're not starting from nowhere. And when you do start to lever, like pull the lever on some of the like early channels you're testing, you at least have the best chance to make the most of it. Like you have the most compelling argument for your product or your service when they are hitting, hitting your page. And I think like sometimes that just gets skipped and it's like, Oh, like, you know, the CTO like wrote the homepage and it's like, well, is that the most compelling? Like, is that the best presentation that you could have when you're like pulling the first lever and driving people to your site? You know? Right. And I think, you know, I'm sure it has like a, a, a proper scientific name, but like there's a fallacy that, you know, we think that everybody thinks the same way as we do. And, you know, early stage founders are a classic example of like they are exceptional people. Like the average person does not start a company. The average person does not have the expertise and the skills and, you know, the knowledge to, to do that. And so sometimes what you'll find is they have a breadth of knowledge and, you know, the ability to like code switch across functions um, that, you know, a lot of times other people don't. So they might describe the problem using either very technical language or language that um, might be used by more of like a, you know, yeah, like a technical role. Um, but it's not the, the words that, you know, the people who are the end users or buyers of the, the, the product would solve. And sometimes it's a little bit, it's almost like you kind of need to um, put your ego aside and say, well, I don't want to dumb it down, but... I do need to speak in the way that my customers speak. Um, but I mean, going back to the sort of like the overall topic here is like, that's such a difficult thing to measure when you're doing that kind of work mm -hmm. um, at this stage, because, you know, imagine if I had set that goal of like, Hey, I need a thousand views on that blog post. Like I am forgoing this really interesting and necessary foundational work of like, what do we do? Who are we for? How do we talk about ourselves to go and say, oh, well, I better go you know, put out another tweet or something like that. And, you know, send another email just so I hit that, um, you know, thousand blog post uh, page view goal. Yeah, it seems like um, I, this isn't a fully formulated thought, but it, it there, there seems to me that there's some truth to the fact that like the earlier you are, the stronger of like uh I'll call it like a, an observational marketer or a gut marketer like you need, like someone who can come in and quickly understand what's in the founder's heads, talk to some customers, 
you know, frame the offer, frame the service in a really compelling way and kind of think really intuitively because you don't have any data to go off of. So it's like, who are the people we want to talk to? Um, where do they pay attention most of the day? Where do they hang out? Where do they spend time? What are the things that are going to be compelling to them and valuable enough to them to consume every day? How can we get in their world and bring value to them? Like you need to start from very first principles and most of it is just hypothesis. So the ability to think really just sort of like reverse engineer how humans behave um, and, and kind of put yourself in the customer's shoes, like be empathetic, be observational. Uh, seems like it would go a long way when you don't have the data to sort of back up what you should be doing. Completely agree. And I think something that you kind of touched on earlier is um, the other side of that is uh, you can maybe fall into a trap where it's, okay, well, I'm just going to sit back and sort of like ruminate all day long and I'm just going to write internal documents and, you know, form hypotheses. Like you do have to have the discipline of, okay, we formed a hypothesis, but there's a whole other part of that scientific method that you have to execute on. Like you have to go and, you know, put it out into the world. You have to, you know, get some way of measuring uh, you know, and testing against the hypothesis and then figuring out what you're going to do next. Um, you know, I think the other way that this sort of like model can go wrong at an early stage is that you do spend sort of, you know, you refresh the website every month or every week, you know, you're rewriting headlines constantly because you're not, um, you're not figuring out how you build on that, um, how you actually figure out what's, what you're doing is working. And it's just like, oh, well, I had another idea today, you know, Early stage companies don't die for lack of ideas. <laughs> they die for lack of execution. Yeah, 100%, um, which is a beautiful uh, full circle back to like, hence, you've, you've had the intuition, you've made the bets, you've written the plan, and now you all um, at Pace are focusing on just executing until you have enough data to, to emulate on. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. I feel like... I feel like I could talk to you forever. You're like so easy to talk to, and I feel like we could jam. It's so fun to jam on this stuff. Um, but I'll be I'll be disciplined and move on. So let's get into then. Um, that's that's kind of what you're doing at Pace. So let's take a step back in history a little bit when you were at Gremlin, um, and talk about how you measured and grew engagement for ABM accounts. Can you sort of let's start here? Can you set the stage for like what what was the goal? What was going on? You were working. Was this in con- you driving marketing in conjunction with sales? You had identified some some high you know priority targeted accounts. Um, what was the goal? Who were you targeting? How are you thinking about putting them into tiers? Like s- set the stage for us there. Yeah. So, um, this is a, a very, you know, I think common, uh, scenario that the companies at, at Gremlin stage at that time found themselves in, you know, we raised a really great, uh, series B, like we we're starting to see really cool traction with customers. Like we were, you know, really growing up as a company, having conversations with companies we never thought to be speaking to. Um, and so we kind of gotten over that initial sort of like product market fit hurdle. We were starting to find the channels that were like, you know, uh, scalable and consistent. Um, but then, you know, we had to start thinking about efficiency. So, you know, it was no longer efficient for us to be driving however many thousands of leads or MQLs or what it was, um, and have sales chase every single one of those and have like, you know, a conversion rate in the single digits. Like, um, there's just not enough hours in the day to do that. Um, so the sort of the big strategy question was how do we make the marketing and sales funnel more efficient? Um, one very sort of tried and tested method at this point is to take an account-based approach. So, Hey, we're really going to focus our efforts on a smaller set of, um, of companies that we've identified to have the highest propensity to buy from us. 
Um, so yeah, it was a it was a bet, but it was a bet made on um, historical data of of who had bought from us in the past, but also you know based on our understanding of our product, the value that people got from it, what types of companies would would benefit from a product like Gremlin. Um, and so, yeah, to your point, like a lot of that was um, sort of aligning on the strategy. Why are we doing it? What's it going to look like? You know, doing the account selection was, um, you know, very much driven by sales uh, with support from my team. Um, and, you know, it's when we started to think about what the execution looked like, it was actually similar to that problem that I was, I was describing before is I knew that this was going to take a while to really have like the impact we were looking for like this wasn't a hey let's run one campaign and then suddenly our mql conversion rate is going to be like 15 percent or something like that um like a lot of these companies we'd never uh spoken to before at all like maybe an sdr had sent them a couple emails but like by and large they had no idea who we were so that process of like introducing them not only to who we were as a company but some of the problem spaces that uh you know may not be familiar to them was going to take months it might could even take a year or so um, and so really what I wanted to do was design a metric that would start to give us information immediately as to whether we were doing the right things. Mm. And so that metric uh, had to be a combination of like the quantity, like the reach, were we, you know, doing things at the right scale, but also the quality of like, was what we were doing actually working? And so to be very specific by what I mean by that, um, the, the sort of like model we came up with was we were going to track, I think it was month over month, could have been quarter over quarter. Like what was the, um, increase in both the total lead score of, um, contacts in our, uh, target accounts, but then on an individual contact basis, what was the change in the average lead score? Um, and so the reason we designed it that way is it again qual it, it uh, controlled for both the quantity side of things and the quality. Um, it would be very easy for someone in my position to be like, "All right, ABM, here's my 500 account list. I'm going to just blast them with ads all day long, right? And or I'm going to go and buy lists or do some other you know really uh, unnatural thing. Um, and you know, at the very top of the funnel, I'm like growing you know the contact base in those accounts, or I'm getting impressions or what have you. But, um, and while that is important, in some of these cases, we did need to grow, you know, our addressable footprint in those accounts, like, that doesn't actually get us anything. And so we also wanted to measure, like, on a per contact basis, were people more engaged with us, less engaged with us, uh, about the same? Um, because what I wanted to make sure we weren't doing was just, you know, kind of spraying and praying and getting small kind of meaningless engagement with with gremlin um, that actually didn't you know net us out anything so kind of like modeling it that way tracking that over time allowed us to really make sure that we were pointed in the right direction and that we'd sort of like found the right balance between driving for quantity but also keeping that quality threshold what was the metric did you have like a an internal name for the metric or was it just uh, abm engagement or what was the word that you used for for reference for it you're really calling out a, a marketing failure on my <laughs> my side. I didn't give it a name, but it really it probably really needed one. I think we just called it like yeah, the uh, you know engagement score or something like that. Um, it's okay uh, on my end. We don't need another three letter acronym, but for your fame, you should you should name it, uh, and then you know it'll go viral and stuff. Um, so the so th so this was you said this was a um, 
I can't think of the word, but a combination of the two then. So you, so basically this was how many, when you say quantity, this was how many accounts you were reaching that were within your targeted list or was it like impressions per account? Like how, how did that quantity work? Um, it's a little bit, I guess it's kind of both. So like, um, just to like make a really simple example, say, uh, Say we had one target account and, you know, that target account was Nike. And, you know, imagine that we started off with having like one contact at Nike and they absolutely loved us. They were like on our website. They were downloading our content. They were signing up for a product and they had like a lead score of 100. Um, so the average lead score per contact is 100 and the total is 100. Um, we run some ABM campaigns and we acquire nine more contacts at Nike. They do not care about Gremlin at all. They saw our ads, they didn't engage. Um, now we have um, the same total engagement score, but the average is 10. We've taken a huge haircut on the average score. So to me that says, okay, we're neither you know, improving our total you know, engagement and we're actually, it's to the detriment of our average. Mm. Um, and so that, that is a you know, blinking red light that something is wrong. Um, so taking that same example, say we still had our you know, number one champion and then we acquired nine more contacts and each of them, you know, uh, did some small engagement and had a score of 10 points each. So now the average is, you know, something like 30 um, and the total is, you know, uh, 190, or I guess it's 19. Um, quick math right here. So like now we're saying we've increased the total and yes, we've, you know, we've taken a haircut on the, the average, but over time, um, we want to keep, make sure that that's continuing to increase so that across the target account, we're continuing to drive engagement. Um, because that's the type, that's the motion that makes ABM, um, so effective is, is that sort of collective. Like if you just have one guy or one person who's like, you know, all over you and you could say, Oh, look, you know, Nike's average or uh, Nike's total score is super high. It's like, yeah, but it's driven by one person. And mm -hmm. we know that one person cannot buy our product. It's a consensus decision. Lots of people need to be involved. And, you know, everybody in that buying organization needs to know who we are. Um, I can point to that company and tell you that that's not happening right now. So we're not doing our job. Right. Okay. So this is really like a metric that it's a broad, it's a big metric that, gives you a really holistic look at how ABM is truly performing. Otherwise yeah. there's a lot of ways to sort of skew. Um, like you said, like you, so you're saying, okay, well we're going to count everyone that we've added that we've ever had a contact with or targeted or known. And we're going to measure the quality of their engage of each of those individuals engagement with us versus biasing toward one person, um, who, who really started out liking us. And then you're also counting like, just the quantity of like all these, all these engagements together and you're, and you're using like the lead score as a metric to know, like, are we going up or down with this? Yeah. Um, so, okay. So what steps did you take to actually, this is really interesting. What steps did you take to actually, so start us out like in, you know, with a simple example, maybe like you're, you, you've got Nike on, you know, on your radar. Um, you're, you're about to launch this ABM campaign. We now know the definitions of what you're going for, for this holistic to, to measure this, the effect of this campaign holistically, what were some of the steps that you took to actually move the needle on this metric? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I feel like I, before I answer that, like obviously to the conversation we were having earlier, like the, we weren't optimizing for these metrics. This was really a function of how do we get information as quickly as possible so that we don't go and blow a bunch of our marketing budget um, and then don't know that it didn't do anything until six months. So this was really like, how do we establish a leading indicator that's like a little bit better than just like 
ad impressions or you know number of downloads um, we were obviously you know the end goal here was revenue new logos uh you know pipeline all of those like you know um, down funnel metrics which we were obviously paying attention to but to answer your question um we knew that because there were certain um you know accounts where we didn't have good coverage like for that example like there was one person at nike that we'd been engaged with like we knew that for the first month that we were running these campaigns that average lead score was probably going to drop um, but if we were doing the right thing, the total should increase. And that was correct. Um, so, you know, that was good validation early on that, you know, the targeting was correct, that we're actually like reaching those people in those accounts that we care about. They're taking some meaningful engagement, you know, determined by our lead scoring. Um, so that was like, Hey, you know, the base level segmentation is fine. Um, then, you know, you can start to use that in conjunction with, your other sort of like campaign level metrics of like, okay, well, what um, channels, content, offer can you, uh, can we play with to make this more effective? And then we could start saying, okay, what's the month over month, quarter over quarter increase in both of those metrics? Because as we get more efficient, as we get better with our, you know, um, not only like getting in front of those people, but like with the right content at the right time with the right offer, um, both of those things are going to increase. And, and that's kind of what we saw. Um, the biggest challenge with this, I'd say, is because it was a little bit, you know, when you first explain it, it sounds a little harebrained. Like the, the most challenging thing was just helping the organization understand what these metrics are, how we calculate them and why they, they matter. And most of the time it was conversations like the one we just had. It's like, hey, these are the things that we have available to us today. These are like the standard metrics that we have that we could look at. Here's why they don't tell the full story and we really need something else. So here's how we're going to be using this metric and, you know, just kind of being a little bit repetitive of, of um, kind of rolling this out and, and um, getting people familiar with, with why we're looking at this. Um, again, keeping in mind that the ultimate goal was still those revenue uh, customer metrics, but we needed something in the interim until those, you know, sales cycles could bake. What, what role was it? Um, could you help tease apart like what role sales played versus what what marketing did and how you kind of work together here so um, so for example like i've like I have no experience with ABM so i'm this might this might sound dumb to listeners so i 'm going to take a stab at this right so into, like intuitively, I kind of think about it like okay, so you have to have someone who like you know some impact on like um, one team is using the ICP or setting the, or like owning the ICP and picking the best accounts that you take. Then there's like identifying out of 500 people at the organization or a thousand or whatever it is who are like the 10, 25, like whatever that you want to target. Then identifying like what content is going to be valuable to all of their roles. Cause I'd imagine like if your champion is a salesperson, but some others are like revenue officers or whatever, like it may not be the same content that overlaps. So then you're identifying what's valuable to each of these roles that we're trying to target. And then maybe there's like a layer of personalization. So like, am, am I thinking about that the right way? Or like, how did you like divvy this up and kind of tackle it? Yeah, I mean, honestly, for someone who says you've never done ABM before, you've got a pretty good <laughs> grasp of the things you should be paying attention to. Yeah, I mean, I feel like any conversation about ABM kind of like ends up talking about um, marketing and sales collaboration or uh, account selection, because uh, those are the two sort of like, you know, medias topics. Um, on the account selection, I, you know, as we were starting this motion, like the worst possible thing I could do was go to the sales team and say, here are our target accounts. 
and it not resemble at all what they think is where they should be spending time. Um, so really for the first couple of iterations, I'm like, you tell me where you want marketing to spend time. And if that was like deals you already have in flight or like, you know, just these like customers you've sold to at previous companies, like whatever the sort of like heuristics they were using, I was okay with that. Um, just to get the buy-in and just to make sure that there's like, you know, alignment of why we're doing this. Um, so, you know, if there was anything that was like really far outside of our ICP, like we would have the conversation about that. Um, but yeah, for the first, first couple iterations, I really wanted, you know, sales to be in the driver's seat of like account selection. And I think, you know, that was the right choice in retrospect. Um, to your point though, a lot of companies have products like Gremlin where it's not just like, you know, a checkbox solution. Like you probably have to get buy-in from, um, you know, whoever the end users of the product, like maybe there's some sort of security review or like a centralized IT team or like finance or like whatever. And you have all of these different roles uh, that may be involved in, in the purchase decision. And to varying extents, you want to, um, you know, front load, uh, you know, getting engaged with them. Um, for a company like Gremlin, like we had hypotheses of, of who those people are, but um, for us, it wasn't super cut and dry. Um, so we spent less time on sort of like the persona development and, and sort of carving out, making sure we had, you know, a CTO and uh, a head of DevOps and, you know, somebody who was more in an operations role. Um, but at a company like Pace, where like the org structures are a little bit more consistent, um, that is something I could foresee us doing, like where we want to say, hey, we need to have, you know, a head of sales really championing us. And we also want to have, um, you know, a marketing contact who's on board. And oh, by the way, we want to make sure we're in front of RevOps. Um, so yeah, I mean, ABM is, is kind of just uh, good marketing for a B2B company. So it's going to look different based on, on uh, your business model and your product. But um, that's kind of how we were thinking about it. Now, can you talk through like um, the when you gave the really good example, um, like of Nike, you've got your champion in there. They're absolutely in love with you. They're consuming everything, every piece of content that you send, you know, whether it's in a nurture campaign or something or like they're, they're browsing your site. Um, but then you add in nine more people and they're way less engaged. Like they have seen your ads, but they're not super interested. Um, first of all, where are those nine people coming from? Are those just nine people that you're pulling from like, let's say LinkedIn targeting and you're like, we know we hit them. Or was this a list you uploaded to LinkedIn? Or was this a list that sales gave you of like, these are the 10 people we want to pick in the org? Like where are those nine people coming from? And how did you measure their initial lead score? Like how did, how did you measure consumption of them? Like what were you feeding them that they weren't consuming in your example? You know what I mean? So you have like the champion who's consuming, where are you getting the nine others and how did, what, what stuff were they not consuming? What's the kind of content you were feeding them? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I guess, um, I guess there was actually no scenario where their you know score would be absolute zero because they had to do something for us to acquire them. Um, even if that was like, hey, we met them at an event like two years ago. Um, like, you know, there was something they did, like we were all opt-in marketing. So like there was no list uploads happening. Um, so when I say like, you know, the marketing might not be effective, like they're, they're not boosting their lead score, like it would be um, gated content. It might be um, webinars, virtual events, in-person events that we're doing. Uh, we did a lot of like uh, virtual uh, technical workshops, uh, which were very effective. Um, so that would be a, like a very common offer that we would do in like an ABM scenario, especially for a company where we had like 
a base level of like top of funnel engagement and we really wanted to sort of move them forward, we would, you know, put a, a webinar or, you know, um, boot camp workshop in front of them. Um, so those would be the kind of things that start to tell us, hey, are these people actually leaning in? You know, is this a, a problem that they appear to be trying to solve or is this just sort of, hey, they were doing some research one day and there's not really, you know, not really anything there. Okay. And was there any, so this was more like a, a measurement then and less like if you got, let's say you targeted one account, um, we'll keep picking on Nike. Uh, well, let's do Adidas. So, so now Adidas comes in to the CRM uh, and you are targeting them and you see that, that your holistic score is low. You see that you've got these 10 people, only, you know, maybe one's a champion, but the others are fairly low and they've brought the aggregate down. Um, was there anything you would do in like I'm trying to think of how to word this? What was it more just a good barometer of the health of that and how much to invest time in it? Or would you actively try on the marketing and to raise the engagement? So if you saw a lead score that was not performing, would you say, ah, let's test some new content. Let's see if we can find something that resonates more. Or would you say, nah, we know this works well for like our best customers. If, if it's, if resonance is low and they're not responding well, you would just spend less time maybe with that account. I think a bit of both. Um, so definitely if we had an asset that's like, Hey, this is a sort of cash cow for us. Like we know that this performs. Um, and it just wasn't landing for them. Like, I think that would definitely be a, hey, you know, let's let's cut that span. Let's, you know, let's uh, maybe roll the, that account off our list next quarter. Um, but if it was something new, um, you know, I think we would be more about, okay, what are we doing that's, that's not making this resonate? Um, but the flip side of, of this, uh, which you kind of alluded to, is like the a well-designed lead score can actually be a good... Um, uh, you know, mnemonic for where they are in the funnel, um, like where they are in their research. So, um, you know, I, I, you might have even heard me kind of like use this interchangeably. Like if they had a, a low aggregate lead score, like they're just very early in their uh, evaluation journey. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the the takeaway there is like we can actually say, okay, maybe we were delivering content that was a little bit too, um, too mid-funnel, too bottom of funnel, and we actually need to kind of like slow our roll a little bit and, you know, focus more on education and awareness. Um and you know the the engagement would creep up slower but it's it's right content right time versus hey let's just go in for the slam dunk yeah that makes a ton of sense so you might see a lower aggregate lead score and you might just say there's nothing we're necessarily doing wrong they're just more top of funnel than we thought and it's either a, it's either a measure it sounds like it's either a measure of being patient and letting them like would you see would would you kind of like let content drip out and watch engagement continue and eventually you'd see a score just go up kind of without not without you doing anything because obviously you're curating this content stuff but would you see it go up over time or did you always kind of have to be doing things in order to make that go up over time um we definitely had you know active campaigns that were really thinking about how do we you know actively uh, influence this metric um but over time it was less sort of like Ad, not ad hoc, but it was less one-offs and more like we built the infrastructure to do this kind of like on an ongoing basis. Um, I mean, like our email nurture system was like really robust that if someone did start to lean in and engage, like it was very automated that they would sort of like progress through the funnel, get delivered more and more um, in-depth product-specific content. Um, and so you would see that kind of happen pretty uh, autonomously. Um, but for the sort of top of funnel, um, 
or you know new use case or we're trying out this new angle or new content or you know we want to talk about how we work with this new hot technology um that would still be very like active um and that goes back to just like you know what is product marketing uh, saying that we should be focused on, like, what are they testing in terms of messaging and positioning? Um, so that all goes hand in hand with, with uh, you know, what we're talking about here. And who set the standards for lead scoring? I guess that's my last question. Like, a lot of it hovers around that. So was that something you did in tandem with sales? Did sales own that the same way they signed, sort of, like, own the initial list of who you'd target? Like, what dictated that? Because that, that fed a lot into this metric, it sounded like. Yeah, I mean, um, I think going in detail on lead scoring could be a whole other, you know, conversation, but, uh, we had a relatively straightforward model, um, that we updated like quarterly. And really what we tried to do is, um, think about, uh, like how much intent did this action represent and, uh, sort of what does it correspond to in terms of like our understanding of the buyer's journey. Um, and so let me give you an example there. Like if they just stopped by our booth at a trade show, cause they wanted our swag, like, very low intent and incredibly top of funnel. That's not going to get a high score at all. Um, by contrast, like if they sit through an hour long webinar, like that's an, that's like a pretty like strong single of intent, signal of intent. But if the content was very top of funnel, like we need to take that into consideration as well. They just may be there to learn something new, self-educate because they want to go and get a new job, not because they want to buy Gremlin uh, or, you know, whatever products. Um, so it was, it was kind of designing it in tandem of like how much effort were they exerting um, and how sort of like correlated to making a purchase was that effort. Okay. Yeah. Makes a ton of sense. It's all super smart. I love, I love learning about this. Uh, it's been awesome to chat with you about this. So what, what can you share as far as what were some of the residual results that you saw then as an effect of this, like kind of being able to measure the holistic, um, yeah, the holistic nature of the accounts, how they were, how they were all engaging versus where a lot of companies might do an ABM campaign, like you said, and kind of just, just use the, the champion as the, as the barometer. They're like, we're doing great, but you, you all took this holistic approach. You measure these wide range of things. Um, you would tweak content over time. What was some of the results that you saw from this? So I guess I'll start with sort of the, the qualitative results. I mean, I think the, the thing that was really a success was, you know, after the first quarter, Nobody was saying, oh, you know, what, what the hell's going on with this ABM stuff? Like, this is a waste of time. You know, it's not working. Uh, because we were able to show uh, traction and progress, even if it wasn't showing up, like, on a, you know, sales forecast report yet. Uh, we were able to say, like, here are the new logos that are, like, you know, way more engaged than they were three months ago. Um, you know, so sort of saying, out on the horizon, they're coming. It's going to take some time, but, like, like, let's stick to it. So the fact that we stuck to the strategy, like stayed the course and we're all committed as a, an organization to like iterating on this versus like doing it for a quarter, two quarters, you know, not winning a deal and being like to hell with it. Let's just go back to what we're doing. Um, you know, the second thing is once stuff did come through, it was really nice to be able to say like, Hey, we called our shot. Like not only by, we chose the right accounts on the sales side, but marketing was saying, hey, we told you they were leaning in and now we have an opportunity with them. Now we have a late stage opportunity with them. Now we have a close one deal with them. Um, so being able to like connect that dot to like, we said this, you know, six months ago and now it happened. Like, aren't you so glad we stuck with it? Um, that was really powerful. Um, from like the qual uh, quantitative side, uh, we obviously, you know, saw pretty significant increases in engagement across those accounts. Like I can't remember the exact numbers, but we were able to meaningfully move the needle on, 
you know, the amount of people at those companies we cared about, like on our website, engaging with our content, attending our events, etc. Um, and then, you know, the interesting uh, side effect of this was way, you know, uh, at the beginning of this, we talked about um, the, the reason, the underlying reason for doing an account-based marketing strategy was to improve the efficiency of our sales marketing funnel. One outcome of that was we were able to improve our MQL conversion rate. So mm-hmm. um, this was the, 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 you know, question of how many people are we sending to sales versus how many of them turning into opportunities. Because we were able to target the right people and because they had gone sort of through that funnel like we were able to you know add a few points to that conversion rate which for anyone who spent time thinking about mql conversion rates like can have a massive massive impact yeah yeah that's amazing it sounds like um it's it's amazing because you know so often we talk to people like where there's this you know a lot of the show is bent around um we we looked at this existing metric which most people know and we're gonna like pull all these levers to try and like move the needle on this metric and grow it and this is such an interesting use case of something where you actually just slowed down and thought of a better way to measure it and a better way to get like a real read on where it's at and let that kind of dictate like how you approached it um which drove all these results which a lot of people you know, like if you're just taking what people accept as like the standard definition of a metric and not applying it to your use case or, or not kind of asking more skeptical questions of it, like, you know, to, to your earlier point would be like, look, our, our ABM campaign is thriving and, and, you know, it's sort of like vanity metrics for ABM, like they're, they're staying there. So I think this is a really cool use case um, of just how expanding your definition of something, questioning the assumption of what goes into it, what measures it is going to force you to think holistically about this whole thing. And that in in all these small ways seems to dictate your approach or your strategy to these things. Yeah, I, I totally buy into that. I mean, I think like if you think about what it means to optimize like a conversion rate, for example, like that conversion rate is made up of a numerator and a denominator, like, and to improve your conversion rate, you can either increase the numerator or decrease the denominator. And a lot of people get stuck on that that sort of like process of like what's the thing that happens immediately before and what's the outcome we're trying to drive i want more of the outcome and maybe you know to get the conversion rate up i'm going to reduce the input and make sure i'm only sending through the people who are likely to reach that outcome like that's perfectly rational and reasonable to do but in you know the systems that we're talking about like there's so much happening upstream of that that have a direct impact on you know people's propensity to actually take that action so um you know even if you're like trying to optimize a landing page conversion like you can spend a ton of time about that on-page experience changing the design changing the copy changing the layout all that kind of thing but what was the thing that people saw immediately before that like maybe the reason your on-page conversion rate is low is because your ad copy and your landing page have nothing to do with each other Um, and so you'd be better off tweaking your ad copy or you know, thinking about the the step immediately before uh, to the end of your landing page conversion rate, and I think that's the thing that gets lost so many times is like, what's the full journey, and is our you know suboptimal metric here actually just a side effect of something that's happening a little bit sooner or like further up the funnel? Yeah, I completely agree. It feels like uh, we've unintentionally drawn like a common thread from the, what we said in the very beginning of like, you know, it almost just goes back to this like you know, data cannot answer all your problems. It's not always going to be available when you're early. And even when you're late, it can skew the way that you think about something. You can think something's going really well when it's not. 
and um, or you can think too simplistically about it, and it just involves from a marketing perspective really looking holistically, you know, about the metric, what's impacting it, what's driving it, all the pieces that are involved. You know, like in the early example we talked about. Uh, getting what's in the founders' heads out and on the website, talking to early customers, improving that, like that being a basis. It's you, you don't you're not doing it based on any data, but um, but yeah, you've you've got to think holistically about these things. So this this has been an awesome conversation. I I really appreciate you uh, coming on and sharing all these insights. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. Um, cool, awesome. Well, where can people uh, check out Pace if they're interested, and where can people sort of follow you? Yeah, the answer is the same for both. Um, come find me on LinkedIn. I guarantee you if you copy and paste my name, you'll only find one, Peter Zavistovich. Um, and yeah, uh, give Pace a follow too. If you're in uh, B2B SaaS, we're always posting about interesting stuff related to uh, you know, sales, marketing, product-led growth. Uh, so come give us a follow. Awesome. Thanks so much, Peter. I'll talk to you later. Yeah, thank you. Thanks so much for listening. If you found this episode valuable, check out our other episodes or subscribe to get new ones. If you want to support the show, we'd love for you to leave a review or share it with someone. And if you want a tool to help you track and improve your business performance, try Databox free at databox.com.